0: Good morning, I love the hymn choice, it is well with my soul, if uh, you're not aware of the story, uh, the writer lost his family in a transatlantic voyage, and that was the fruit of that uh, amazing story, so Ryan, thank you for choosing that hymn this morning. Well, uh, it's Mother's Day, as you know, and I want to say before uh, I get started that uh, the origin of this message today was actually from our church survey, so good things can come out of a survey. Uh, And and a couple of people referenced the fact that they feel a little bit of, well, I would use the word shame for being in a church that's very, you know, very mature. A lot of mature people here know the Bible quite a bit. And if you're not one of that group, you can feel like you don't measure up. And uh, one thing led to another in my thinking and talking uh, with people. uh, I felt very strongly directed to preach this morning on the issue of God's redemption and especially related to shame. Uh, Do you matter here? You sure do. And I just want all of you to know right off the bat that if you're here, you're welcome here. You have a seat at the table, and that's all we need to know. Uh, We take no test of you in terms of your Bible knowledge or your Christian experience or anything like that. In fact, uh, going back to what Alicia said this morning, we're all offenders in the eyes of God, redeemed by His grace, right? So we're all here together, and uh, we will march forward together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for all you are and all you do. I just pray that uh, this morning you would guide me as I uh, preach your word and uh, give me the clarity and the words you want me to say. And so thank you for each one who is here today. We're so blessed to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I, by design, do not preach on Hannah on Mother's Day because I'm a rebel. But speaking of mothers, I do want to start off with a sto- the story of a mother in Matthew chapter 1. And you can turn there or I'll read it to you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph awoke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So it's the story of Mary. Now, Mary was not guilty. Mary had done nothing wrong, but there was shame attached to her situation. She was a young girl, maybe 14 or 15, we think, common in the culture to be pregnant young, to be married young. And she ended up being pregnant out of wedlock. There was shame attached in the society. Joseph was just going to put her away quietly. She did not have real guilt. But one of the points I want to make right off the bat is this, that you can be shamed, you can have shame without sinning and without guilt. And that was the condition of the mother Mary. You know, guilt, we understand. Jesus died for a guilt. But shame, we don't talk a lot about that. And so there might be someone who said, well, you know, so this really isn't from the Bible and I'm gonna prove you wrong in a little bit. But uh, when we claim our salvation of Jesus Christ, we claim the fact he died for our sins, he died for our guilt, but attached to that was shame also. And the more I've been researching the shame, it's just been blowing my mind. So this morning I wanna share with you on all of that. So this is kind of an epic message this morning. And uh, it is upon me to make sure that we fit all this in by three o'clock this afternoon. so any kind of full-bodied biblical understanding and redemption and salvation has to include shame christ died for your guilt and when he did he eradicated shame amen amen now next week we're doing the mystery message and i won't mention the name of the staff member well one of our staff members actually has been very curious about this and you'll have to talk to her about the uh the horrible joke that the interim pastor played on her this week but anyway next week mystery message They're kind of a match set, except today is more the heavy message, and next week will be a little lighter, as you'll see. All right, so today we're in the God who can redeem anything. I just love that title. I'm very excited about this message today. And so let me tell you a little bit about some shame stories in the Bible. Now, you know these, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. But I think we overlook just how prominent shame was in the Bible, in Bible characters. So Noah, in the Old Testament, got drunk and caused scandal jacob was a liar schemer and con artist god wrestled him and wounded his hip i probably would have broken more than that moses didn't want to speak for god and he disobeyed god in anger so he did not enter the promised land rahab was a liar was a prostitute and probably more than that she was a madam she was a brothel owner samson was a womanizer was egotistical and foolish David, King David, was an adulterer and murderer. Reading the story of David, which I've recently been doing, as his kingdom developed, reminds me a lot of when I watched the Godfather trilogy. Solomon was a womanizer and a builder of idols. He had a thousand wives and porcupines, I mean concubines. It was a really sticky situation, but they pulled his heart from the Lord. I'm going for lightness where I can get it today, okay? Elijah was a great prophet until Jezebel put out a contract on him. Then he turned tail, he ran, he was terrified, and he was suicidal. Jonah was a narcissist and seemed to hate mankind. Aren't you glad Jonah's not your interim pastor? Here's the word, but I don't care if you take it or not. Boom, I'm calling down fire and brimstone on your head. New Testament, Matthew and Zacchaeus were tax collectors, which means that they were extortionists. Simon the Zealot was most likely a murderer or terrorist. The Samaritan woman had five marriages and was shacking up with number six to be. Peter was a temperamental hothead, yet he was terrified by a teenage girl and took an oath of cursing upon himself that he did not know Jesus. He publicly denied Jesus three times. In fact, in Matthew 26, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. Servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now you talk about shame. The night Jesus is betrayed, the day before he dies, you deny him three times in public, and it's captured in the eternal word of God. That is shame. The other disciples also ran away on Jesus. Paul was a murderer of men, women, and apparently children as well before he came to Christ. Any one of these people ought to be left out of heaven, right? And they have every right to be mortified in heaven. I can imagine church lady gets up to heaven. Now, Peter, I remember when you denied Jesus three times. He'll never get away from it. Almost all of the covenant people and heroes of the faith in the Bible were sinners on display for all of us for all time to see. There were exceptions. One of my favorite people, of course, is Daniel. Maybe Joseph, although he could get a little snotty. So, you know, if you're a shame-filled Christian, you're in pretty good company. Because in the Bible, they were. Obviously, except for Jesus and Daniel. But let's talk about the biggie the biggie will you turn with me to genesis chapter 2 if you're wondering um what bible passage is going to be our focus today the foundational passage is genesis chapter 2 if you're not sure how to find genesis 2 go back to the book of table of contents and go to the next book and find chapter 2 it's pretty pretty easy And the key here that often is overlooked in Genesis chapter 2, the key is hanging on the back of the door, if you will, at the end of chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When I preach it in the South, I have to pronounce it naked. but The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And remember, don't forget in the Bible, originally, there were no chapter and verse breaks. They were added later, hundreds of years later. And so this is a shift into chapter three, but really in the narrative, it's boom, boom. They were both naked. They were not ashamed. They were not vulnerable. There was no problem with this. It's not just about the nudity. It's about the fact that they had nothing to hide. They were totally vulnerable. And in chapter 3, the very next verse, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice, he did not at this point directly challenge God, but he planted a thought and a question in the mind of Eve and he disrupted her. And and she was kind of taken aback, I guess. And so she said in verse two, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not what God said. But in her mind, she's kind of twisting it and she's confused and that's what she says. And now in verse four, the serpent, now in the Hebrew, this is extremely clear. He literally defied what God said. He said the exact opposite in the Hebrew. You will not surely die, literally dying. You will not die. God is lying to you, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He injected mistrust. He injected a disruption in the relationship And when you stop and you think about the ramifications of this, this gets deeper and deeper. I'm convinced that probably Genesis 3 maybe is the deepest passage in the Bible of all. And to me, it's the most fascinating to unpack. So one thing uh, you'll find out more, especially uh, ladies in the fall, you'll be having a retreat and it's going to touch on issues of shame. And Beth had mentioned this to me. I'm so glad she did. Dr. Kurt Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. And I'm still digesting this. This is a phenomenal book. His insights are magnificent. He is a medical doctor and a specialist in neurobiology. And we're not here to talk about another book today. We're here to talk about the Bible. But there's some insights I'd like to share that I think are powerful that he brings out from chapter 2. Satan implied God does not want you to know, Eve. He wants to keep it to himself. God cannot be trusted. Eve You're not one of him. You don't measure up. You don't matter. You're bad. And knowing you're bad, you might as well be bad. And wanting to be desired, Eve was, but not feeling desired by God, Eve lurched straight toward the thing in the garden that was the most desirable, which was the fruit that they were not allowed to partake of. And one thing Thompson said, the vulnerability of nakedness is the antithet- me, antithesis of shame. Once they were shamed, they had to cover up. They hid. Shame hides. Shame lurks in the dark places and no one knows. It occurred to me in preparing for this message, have you ever noticed that people brag about their guilt? They brag about how great a sinners they are. I'm bad to the bone. if you're bad to the bone, I'd go to a doctor right away. When was the last time you ever heard somebody brag about their shame? I can't think of hearing somebody brag about their shame. And the insight here is that Thompson, who wrote this book, believes that shame is the primary tool that's leveraged by evil. That Satan intentionally injected shame into mankind, And out of it emerged everything that we know as sin because we all hunger for relationship. We hunger for being known, loved, and desired, but shame drives us in the opposite and perverse direction. And perhaps the greatest fear that we all have is to be abandoned by those that we want to love us. And what Satan did was injected the thought in Eve that God was abandoning her. And so she went in another direction. Now, chew on that, whether you agree or not, I mean, that's fine. Uh, But I thought the insights are pretty incredible. In fact, there's something he says in here, because he's a neurobiologist, that I think is powerful, and I wish I had known it years ago. Shame is something sensed. And a child will sense shame from the parents long before the child has the ability mentally to process the logic of it. Which means that long before we tell our children who they are, they have picked up from us whether they should be ashamed of who they are or not. And my friends, that is powerful. And for you parents of young children, I would just encourage all of you to take that really to heart, to be careful what messages of shame that you're giving. Shame is Satan's prime mechanism for pinning us down. And a person who is living with shame and is saturated with shame is a person who basically is penned down in the plan of God. And so Thompson goes on. I'm going to say a couple more things about it, and then we'll move on. Researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self, apart from any interactions with others. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I have done that negatively affects someone else. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. In fact, when in its grip, it is quite difficult for us to separate ourselves from the shame that we are feeling. Now, Alicia has mentioned the prison ministry, which is just amazing she does that. But just imagine, if you were to go in that prison and you were to identify all the shame in that prison, how much would you find? I think it'd be enormous. And before I get off this and move on, shame is often injected in a family the most when the environment is perfectionistic. And I think that's a warning to our churches to watch out for being an assembly of have it together perfectionists. And if you were to look around at this church and feel like everybody has it together except me, first of all, I think you'd be wrong. I think we all have our shame and our backgrounds, if not currently. And it occurred to me, I'll throw this out there, and you can think about it and talk about it at lunch. The perfectionist at church could actually be the greatest hotbed for evil. Talk to a Catholic in Boston and see what they would say. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the ministry world right now. Over and over and over, it's coming out in the news. Heavy, I know, it's heavy, but isn't that true? So our goal is to be mature in Christ, but it's not to be perfect. If we try to create a perfect environment, what we're going to do is create an environment where we're creating pockets of hiding and pockets of shame. And there's a fine line between the two. Wow, that's heavy. You know, I was looking up some words, and I always like to know definitions like what does shame mean? And and shame's been called a painful feeling caused by the awareness or exposure of unworthy or indecent conduct or circumstances and then you can use it as a verb to cause to feel shame. Honestly, I'd rather have a guilt trip given to me than a shame trip, because when you give a guilt trip to somebody, they can accept or reject it. You know, am I right or wrong? If I feel like I'm right, then forget the guilt trip. But when you give somebody a shame trip, you have crippled that person. And Thompson says, shame stays with you. Like, y'all know what Giardia is? If you hike in the woods, they highly recommend you don't drink straight out of a stream you'll get giardia in your system and it never leaves your body. They can treat it, but it's always there. Shame is like that. And I was looking at some of the words associated with shame, which you see up on the screen. And you know, that's not a pretty good list of words, is it? Black eye, contempt, guilt, scandal, humiliation, degradation, dishonor, disrepute, stigma, ignominy, infamy, reproach, self-disgust, self-reproach, smear, stupefaction, whatever that is. Treachery, bad conscience, ill repute, loss of faith, skeleton in the closet. Now, how many of those words sound good to us? None. Shame is satanic poison. Now, we've got to deal with it. But it's likely that many of us have shame embedded deeply at us and we have not been able to get it out completely. And it's very likely with any church environment that people walk in and they are wrestling with shame and they just can't deal with it and it's crippling them. And if you're here today and that's been your story, I want to give you a word of hope. God does redeem. I want to, we're heading that way, believe me. Before we do that, I'm going to say this real briefly just because it's a foundation for future Bible study we're going to give. Have you all heard about honor-shame cultures? If your admissions, you have. Uh, It's the idea or theory that there are three general types of culture, righteousness, guilt, power, fear, honor, shame. Now, just to play this out for a minute, this is thought provoking. In a righteousness guilt culture, it's one that tends to emphasize that there is right and wrong, and if you do wrong, you're guilty. We tend to be a righteousness guilt culture. Power, fear, uh, we see in some places in the world where there's a dynamic in the culture of the interplay of power and fear you tend to see a lot of demonic activity and kind of wild things in the in the spiritual world in a power fear culture somebody from a power fear culture would come in into an american church and say you're not spiritual because we don't see any evidence of spiritual warfare in your churches honor shame though is what i want to get to for the sake of time i'm going to move on uh, and obviously there's mixtures here but honor shame is a tribal type culture or also known as clannish very family-oriented, and the emphasis in the tribal culture is to preserve the honor of the tribe. And that's the most important thing. So righteousness guilt does not play into it as much. What matters is honor. I saw this in the Appalachians. One time I caught a student cheating, and he's like, well, I just needed to get the answer any way I could. And the emphasis to him was not guilt. It was honor and shame. He didn't want to be shamed and that was what was most important. And ministering in the Appalachians where they're Scots, Irish in background, they're very clannish, it's about honor-shame. And you think about the cultures like that, uh, the Pashtun in Central Asia, uh, the Appalachians, think about the Hatfield McCoys, uh, honor-shame, you think about, you look at things like uh, organized crime and the mafia, very honor-shame, you've got to be respected, you've got to have honor. And the reason I'm sharing this is biblical cultures tended to be honor-shame. And that's why sometimes we look at a scripture and we say, I don't understand what's going on here, and that's because you're not looking at it from the lens of honor-shame, that it was all about preserving the honor. We certainly see that in the Old Testament. So anyway, I'm going to move on and uh, change perspective here uh, because I want to talk about what the Bible tells us about the God who can redeem anything. Christ himself knew shame but he was never guilty. Isn't that amazing? It was inflicted upon him by the Romans and the crowd. It's likely that when Jesus was on the cross, he was naked. That's the way they did it back then. So he had the shame of that. He was treated like a criminal. He was mocked. He had all that shame put upon him. And so Hebrews 12 says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight And sin, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You were the joy, and I was the joy, set before Jesus on the cross. And he despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But before he got to the throne of God, he swapped with shame, and he took on shame himself. And not only did he kill our sin on the cross, Jesus killed shame once and for all. But we like to drag it up in our lives and keep inflicting it on others. Colossians 3 says, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 10 says, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So my friends, if you came in today wrestling with this burden of shame, I want to let you know that God wants to remove that from you. God wants to take that off of you because he died on the cross for you. And when he died on the cross, he took care of every sin you ever committed or ever will commit. And I believe that as a part of that, Jesus also took on the shame and killed it and so, what he wants you to do now is run to the Father openly and without hiding. Think about how God redeemed shame in the Bible times, and this is where it gets, gets good. It gets better here. Joseph was sold by his brothers, right, into slavery. He spent the rest of his life in a foreign country, but he said, What my brothers intended for evil, God intended for what? For good. Egypt became the incubator for the chosen nation. They grew from less than 100 to several million people, and that was God's plan for them to be in Egypt. I mentioned Rahab. The brothel owner Rahab was placed in the line of Jesus Christ. I think that's amazing. Here's this prostitute who ends up being an ancestress of Jesus. Elijah, I mentioned Elijah, 1 Kings 19. He was scared to death of Jezebel. He ran away in terror And God came to him. And what did God do to Elijah? I just love this passage. You'll hear me say it many times. God came to him, spoke to him in a whisper. God fed him, and God made him take a nap. And God redeemed Elijah. It's like, Elijah, you've been under stress. Relax, kick back, take a nap, and we'll get back at it again. What about Peter? All right, Peter, the great scandal. I believe that if we had left Peter in the state of having denied Jesus three times and left it there, that we would have had an unclosed loop in the New Testament. Because you, as the reader, would evermore be suspicious of Peter. There would be a stigma on Peter. And I believe that that's why, in John chapter 21, Jesus irritated the snot out of Peter because he asked him three times, do you love me? He's like, you know I do. Well, feed my sheep. But I think the reason Jesus did that was to close the loop and to redeem Peter because Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus gives uh, Peter three chances to state his love for Jesus. I think that's fantastic. And then you come near the end of the book of John, basically, with Peter being authenticated and ready to go in and be a leader in the early church. The other disciples, everybody talks about doubting Thomas, you know, that's on his record. Do you know Doubting Thomas was the only one of the disciples in the Gospels to call Jesus God? Think about the other stories in the New Testament. The woman caught in adultery, lepers, paralytics. Jesus basically had the mightiest touch of redemption, redeeming everybody around him. And God still redeems today. All of us have to be redeemed from our guilt. All of us have shame of some kind. In fact, would you do this for me now? And don't panic, just relax. If you have had shame in your life or have it now, at any point in your existence, would you raise your hand? Well, I mean, if we're honest, all of us have to raise our hands. My hand's up. I don't grade you for that. I don't look down my nose at you for that. You're welcome here. But I would ask that we make a committed effort to not live as shamed people, but to live as redeemed people. N.T. Wright has said, We need Christian people to work as healers, as healing judges and prison staff, as healing teachers and administrators, etc., writers and scientists. We need people who will hold on to Christ firmly with one hand and reach out with the other with wit and skill and cheerfulness, with compassion and sorrow to the places where our world is in pain. God is not looking for perfect you. Perfect you does not exist. God is looking for redeemed you so that you can share that redemption with others. One of my uh, involvements is I'm, I'm not kidding, I'm in the Hollywood Prayer Network where you can sign up and pray for people in the film industry. And I've got uh, a uh, director, producer that is uh, a prayer partner. And it's really cool to see what God's doing in Hollywood. Now Hollywood, when you hear Hollywood, you're thinking, Fire and rimstone, baby. Let's smoke them all. But God's working in Hollywood. And the, uh, the note that I just got the other day from them um, was about Andrew Garfield. And let me read what they... This is from Hollywood Prayer Network. Let's praise God for Andrew Garfield and his spiritual journey. We are praising God that Andrew's heart softened from being an atheist to seeking truth when he played two different roles in the feature films Silence and Hacksaw Ridge. Andrew has in recent years become more and more vocal about how easy he found it to fall in love with Jesus while preparing for these roles. Never say that people can't find God in Hollywood. Praise him for that. Hollywood, or I mean, God is asking for us to be a little less concerned about fire and brimstone and a little more concerned about the love of Jesus Christ. And I could tell you, I'll move on quickly, with all my time working at Ministries in Atlanta, there's an amazing work in Atlanta. I think it's the world's biggest film studios right outside of Atlanta. I've got friends ministering there. I've got friends who are ministering to dancers from the strip clubs in Atlanta. Uh, It's just amazing to see how God is working in that incredible city. God is trying to kintsugi everybody. How many of you have heard of the word kintsugi? Ah, a few of you have. That's great. You guys can leave now? Kintsugi is the Japanese art of taking broken pottery, and instead of throwing it away, of using gold-infused resin to heal the cracks and to make a new and glorious pattern. Every piece that's repaired is one of a kind. The brokenness and the repair become part of the item's history rather than being something to throw away. Our Western philosophy strives for perfection, and looks to hide brokenness. Kintsugi acknowledges the brokenness and pieces it together into something beautiful and unique. So I'm gonna show you kintsugi. That's a piece that was broken, is being repaired and is being made beautiful. That's a plate that's been kintsugi'd. They took that gold resin and they put it back together. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Here's another plate. I think this is really cool. I don't know how well you can see it, but basically it's been cracked Okay, we acknowledge the crack, we mark the crack, we mark it with beauty, and all of a sudden the broken piece is a thing of beauty. It's our kintsugi that gives us our testimony. You know, a lot of times Christians are like, yeah, the world will look at us and want to be like us. Well, it's not the know it all nature of Christians that makes the world want to be like them. In fact, they hate that. Uh, Go to any restaurant, talk to the servers and ask them what day of the week is their least favorite, what are they going to tell you? Because we're obnoxious. So the world is not waiting to hear our know-it-all obnoxiousness. I do believe, I don't know if I said this in here or not, I said it on Facebook, but uh, I'm waiting for somebody on Facebook to create a web, a Facebook group called Jerks for Jesus. That would fit. And I'm not kidding. Our testimony is where we've been Kensugi. It's a testimony of a man who lost his family to a shipwreck and could write, it is well with my soul. It's a story of someone who can go through something horrific such as someone being persecuted. I've seen videos of people in Iraq and other places who are scarred because their faces have been disfigured and yet their testimony for Jesus Christ is amazing. Now, you can argue against me about testimony, but when you talk to somebody like that, you've got to kind of take it seriously because they were willing to give their life for Jesus Christ. Where we have our edge is where we suffer. Now, we're not psycho here. I'm not saying I want to just run out and try to find suffering. But the fact is, it's our suffering that gives us the platform to be able to share. In fact, you're going to see that in June. We're cooking up some pretty uh, cool stuff for June 26th. If you're wondering why June 26th, just look up June 26th, 2012 and see what happened. God's doing some pretty cool stuff. Y'all know the name Dr. Walt Larimore from Focus on the Family. Uh, He was with Dobson. They did radio stuff and all that. Walt lives in town. He's a friend of mine. And Friday we got together for a couple hours and we were slurping coffee and talking shame and stuff like that. And uh, later I texted Walt and I said, have you heard of Kintsugi? And he said, yeah, let me send you a letter. He wrote a letter about Kintsugi to a friend. And I want to quote a part of the letter. It strikes me that Jesus is the master of Kintsugi. He knows our brokenness, yet he doesn't reject us or discard us. Where we see a heap of broken pieces, he sees potential and the possibility of creating something beautiful and new. He doesn't want us to hide our brokenness, He wants to heal us in such a way that while the cracks and scars are still visible, they are not something ugly or shameful. They are part of the beauty. Now think about this. After all, we who follow Jesus will be able to see and touch his scars. See, Christ could have chosen in his resurrected body not to have the scars. But he does. They're a reminder of his pain and suffer. For the rest of eternity, Jesus will be scarred. And it's a reminder that evil does not have the final word. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Jesus wears them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. It's in our cracks and scars that we see evidence of healing and God's power to restore. Vance Havner said, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. My understanding is that a broken bone is now stronger once it heals. Is that right? Nancy DeMoss wrote, The very thing we dread and are tempted to resist is actually the means to God's greatest blessings in our lives. And there's no sermon that's legit without quoting either John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon, right? So Spurgeon is the choice today. I beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. Spurgeon said, if there's anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. And he said, I thought this was insightful. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes love letters from heaven are often sent in black edged envelopes my friend god loves to pull us out of our disasters and redeem us i am convinced god loves to redeem he loves to create he loves to redeem he wants to take your dark story and make it bright he wants to kintsugi you with the problems and pains and sufferings you've had in your life he wants them to be your platform for testimony my platform tripled when we had the fire. Are you willing to turn your life over to him and say, God, I am willing to submit to the kintsugiing that you are trying to do in my life? I am willing to be a testifier to your greatness because of the suffering that I've had. If you come in here today, and you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, here's a chance for you to realize God redeemed you, Christ redeemed you, and you can come to him in faith. He's taken it all away. And if you're a believer and you've come in here today wrestling with shame, in a moment I'm going to have a chance for you to just, in your own heart, take the moment to say, God, I want to give up my shame. I want to give it over to you because you died to eradicate it, and yet I still keep it with me. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Would you pray with me? This morning, as we conclude the message time this morning, uh, we know all of us have shame and guilt. We've acknowledged that by raising our hand. We also know that Jesus died for each one of us, and if this morning you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, I want to encourage you that he did something for you you could not do for yourself. On the cross, he eradicated your guilt and shame. He wants that relationship restored. He wants you to come to him. And you can do it this way this morning in your heart. Say to the Lord, Lord Jesus, I realize you died for me, for my guilt and shame. I am not worthy in myself, but you have made me worthy and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In a moment, we'll have a chance, if you wish, to come forward and we can pray with you and talk to you more about that. And for all of us, You have been kintsugi, and I have been kintsugi. But it may be that we have shame that needs to be flushed out. If it does, and if you're willing right now in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, I realize that I have been saturated with shame, but in your grace you have died for me, and you have covered my guilt, and you have covered my shame. Please do not allow my shame to be what colors the rest of my life. I give it up right now. I hand it back to you. I don't want it. Take it. I want to live as a redeemed and free person, not burdened down by shame. If you'd like to pray with someone in a minute, uh, we'll have a chance for you to come forward while we have the music, and we'll have people that can come up and pray with you. I'll be glad to. But allow God to do some work in your heart this morning. Jesus, I know you died for our sins. That in itself is mind-boggling. But to die for our shame and to take it on when you had no right to, when you had no reason to, just shows incredible love that I can't even begin to fathom. Thank you for you. Thank you for all you are, for what you've done and what you will do. We look forward to being with you in heaven someday. But help us right now on this earth to realize how we have been redeemed, the brokenness has been fixed, and you have given us a testimony to share with others. To your glory we pray. Amen.